Jeff Smith, and welcome to The Secrets of Success. This program is part three of the four-part interview with the Stig from BBC's Top Gear, Perry McCarthy. During this episode, I ask him about his life in Formula One and his thoughts on racing with Ayrton Senna, Michael Schumacher, Nigel Mansell and Damon Hill. So here's where you get the inside story on some of the best drivers in the world. Let's go over and listen to the program right now. I, I knew, absolutely knew, all the way through my career, um, that Formula One was where I was supposed to be. Um, because I, you know, I just felt that um, I would have the complete confidence to to take one to the absolute limit because that's what I was designed to do and tell jokes. Okay, now tell me about Andrea Sassetti, Andrea Moda, Formula One. The unusual character, young guy, um, apparently his money come from a shoe business, decided as you do that I want to own a Formula One team. Uh, his own entry into motorsport was bizarre because that's they, he didn't have any experience before that. He just came straight in and owned this new team. They'd bought the remnants of Colonia, I believe it was, the team that had gone bankrupt. And Anyway, it was like Disney's last wish, the entire operation, you know? Goofy as an engineer, Mickey Mouse as a team manager. The thing was a nightmare. Um, they fired their first two drivers, even before they'd turned the wheel. And then word had got around to say, look, you guys are in for a real difficult ride. So you need somebody who's just going to bite through the steering wheel, get on with the job, and just go like crazy. And that's really how I got the drive. But um, it was tough because uh, my background, I didn't have the experience enough to actually go into F1 with a super license. So it was an unusual process for me. Uh, Bernie Ecclestone had to agree it. Max Mosley was head of the FIA, had to agree it. Ron Dennis, Frank Williams, Flavio Briatore, um, Marco Piccinini, who was the lawyer at Ferrari at the time, and also Minardi, Giancarlo Minardi. They all actually had to vote for me mm -hmm. to have the license. So the fact that they all did was really touching, actually. It really meant a huge amount to me because this wasn't an automatic process where nobody would be involved. You've done this amount of racing, you get that, here's your super license. So it was lovely for Ron and Frank and everybody to turn around and say, we know Perry. Mm -hmm. Perry should be in F1 and Bernie. And that was, wow, that was, uh, that actually meant the world to me. Mm. Okay, I, I remember reading that in your book and it was quite touching, the conversation that Bernie had with you. And I remember that one. Yes. And you say Ron Dennis and all these people uh, agreed for you to have the super license, which you have to have mm. to drive a Formula One car. But you had to go and lobby them, didn't you? It wasn't just, oh, I know Perry. Let's let him have a let's let him have a license. Yeah, well, basically, my approach to lobbying and was to just go up and just turn around and say, you know, Ron Bernie's told me to come here. There's been a massive cock up. Um, you know, they won't give me a license. They will if you say I should be here. That that's it. You know, as I said, I'm quite serious that. You know, the only, the closest I ever got to begging for anything was when I was actually in conversation with Bernie and I wasn't begging, but I, but suddenly my temper had got the best of me. You know, mm -hmm. I was going, this is absolutely unfair. 
because I'd already beaten at least 50% of the Formula One grid in different formulas, etc. So I was really annoyed and fighting, you know, really fighting my corner. And the thing is that Bernie being Bernie, uh, he liked that. You know, I like Bernie. I yep. really do. Yep. It's, um, and, but Bernie being Bernie, he really liked that and just turned around and said, right, I am going to help. Yeah, because he could see that I just exploded. I was being respectful, but I sure. was shouting. You sure. know what I mean? You know? Um, okay, so the day comes. You're awarded your license. Yeah. We're ready to go. Yeah. Then one of the officials come to you. No, say, no, 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 no. This is the other way around. Is that? Yeah, because my license was awarded to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in Brazil. Yeah. And then it was at the end of the day, then poor old Roland Brunzerada, mm-hmm. who was with the FIA, yes. turned around to me and said, uh, Perry, where are you going later on? So I said, why? So he said, oh, no, but will you be at the circuit about five or six o'clock? And yeah. I could smell a rat. Yeah. I knew something was wrong. So I went, yeah. And he came up at like five or six o'clock in the evening and said, I need your license back. I said, I haven't, I haven't got it. He said, Perry, give me your license. And there was no point. And I went ballistic at Roland. You know, it wasn't his fault. Mm-hmm. But suddenly, somebody brought it up inside the FIA. So it actually, technically, issuing me with a license when they did it actually was wrong. But I'd been heavily backed by the MSA, which is the organizing body of the uh, Motorsports Association of UK. And they said, right, we're back in Perry. Perry should have the license. Da, 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 da. And somehow it got through FISA. So there had been a mistake issuing it to me. Yeah. And I kind of knew it, you know. Mm-hmm. But then I was thinking, okay, I've got lucky. But then they realized, and that's when I had to go into action about seeing Bernie after the license was taken back. I see. Yeah. <clears throat> now you say in your book, when the license was taken away from you, this is right a, by the I don't think that's ever happened before, yeah, yeah. incidentally. I'm, I'm sure. There's you know? lots of things yeah. that have happened to you that I'm sure have never happened yeah. to anyone else before. <laughs> they call me lucky. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so you've been given your license. Then the FIA guy comes to you. Perry, give me back your license. Mm. You gave it him back. And in your book, you said, I went into a corner and I cried. Mm. It taken, including the work on the oil rigs, it taken me 12 years to get to Formula One. By the time I got to Formula One, as a family, we were broken. Uh, we were on the way to having to give the house back, uh, two small kids, you know, my wife, Karen. Um, you know, I'm not getting the violin out, just talking to you how it was. Mm-hmm. was in massive debt um, because coming through America, coming through Formula 3000, hadn't earned a cent pretty much. You know, so it was all just hanging on for dear life, everything on the dream of getting to F1. And then the elation of being told you're going to be Formula One driver across the weekend and then flying out to Brazil and being greeted there by so many people in F1 and just saying, Perry, you've made it. Well done. Here you are. That's it. And then uh, you just go, oh, wow, I'm on the way. You know, all this dream, all this work, and that's it. And you just got a smile from ear to ear. So... It's kind of slightly dull uh, at the end of the day for them to take the license out and then say, okay, uh, by the way, it's like a, some real cruel game show joke where you're not really an F1 driver and we're taking the license back and you've got to find your way back from Brazil to home. And it's everything had fallen apart inside me. Um, and I just, you know, a, a bit like that Brands Hatch thing is that I'd, I'd had enough. You know, I just, just fell apart. 
And yeah, it was Johnny actually who came around the corner just so Johnny Herbert who came around the corner mm-hmm. just afterward. Because uh, John and I are quite close, you know. And, you know, he sat down, saw me, put an arm around, because I, I dried up by then, but he, he knew, you know. Yeah, of course. And then when I saw him start crying, I've, I've gone, don't start, John, otherwise I'll burst out again, you know what I mean? Because John was welling up on my behalf. Mm. So it was, it was really cool. But the following day, you know, as I said, I just went, hey, stop being a wimp, stop moaning, go into action, fight, find out how I can make this happen. But there was, you know, there were a couple of blows that, that floored me that evening, you know, and I had to try and get myself back together. Um, but as I say, I, I did by the following morning and I was deeply hurt because motor racing was my passion. I like to believe an awful lot of people felt that, you know, I was terribly fast. Mm-hmm. Um, so to be made to look like Mickey Mouse, you know, was a bit, yeah. but whatever, my job was to make sure I got that license. So one stage at a time, get mm. back in and fight. So the, you, you're in the Andrea motor car, mm. Silverstone. Yes. So your chance to qualify. Wets, yeah. What happened? Well, you know, by then we'd been through a bunch of races where um, it, the team were appalling um, and dangerous and not giving me any laps in the car. And then we went out for Silverstone and... It was dry and the team sent me out on wet weather tyres, which means that obviously you're going to be a lot slower, but also the tyres are going to completely break up and you're going to be in the wall inside like two laps. So well, what's the point in doing that? They didn't have the, didn't have the slicks for me, uh, the dry weather tyres. They had them for my teammate. And you went out and I went out and on my first lap I was actually fastest. Uh, but from that session, mm-hmm. yeah. So this was, you know, the pre-qualification group. Uh, and the second lap um, came through, no grip, and it went onto the grass, and I just stayed flat out and just went up through the gears going all the way along the grass because by then I didn't care anymore. And I was actually very lucky on that lap that the clutch went um, because I was that angry that I, I was maybe on the way to getting quite badly hurt, to be quite frank, mm-hmm. um, but then once it wasn't pulling anymore... You couldn't get hurt. I mean, that car was just all in black. All we needed was brass handles fitted on the side. It was going to save a load of time. (laughs) Okay. So Formula One is my own favorite sport, and I've been a huge fan since 1987. I've been fortunate enough to meet with a few drivers, team owners, and principals, but you've raced against and met with four of my personal icons. I want to ask you, what were they like? Number one, Ayrton Senna. Removed, kind of detached, out to be charming when he wanted to be. I mean, we weren't best mates, didn't know him massively, you know, a bunch of times. I remember I got to um, the Dutch Grand Prix in 84. Uh, this is just a month or so after a very big crash I'd had, and I'd broken my back, so I was finding it very difficult to walk there. Yeah. And I'd been taken there by the Tolman team who knew of my existence and it was a bit of a present for kind of getting better, you know, or at least surviving it. And I was showing Derek Warwick the pictures of the crash because somebody had them on all these stills of it flying through the air, twisting in the air. And and then um, 
Derek, you know, being Derek, who's messing around about it, as I'd expect Dell to do. But Ayrton just looked at it, um, really stone-cold face, and then just looked at me and went, lucky boy. You know, and he was really upset. You could see he wasn't happy about it. And the funny thing is, now I actually understand Ayrton, you know, but he was, he was only a year older than me, but he was kind of, had that uh, level of, he was quite serious, you know. Uh, and of course, just the most brilliant racing driver. So, yeah, that's, um, you know, I used to find it uh, great being in Ayrton's company because he was somebody that we all admired. But the moment you start thinking you can never get close to anybody, then you're wasting your time, Absolutely, you know? But yeah. I'd, so I never, I'd never come up against Ayrton wheel to wheel on anything because he was like one or two years above us in motor racing as a school year, if you like, you know? But he was certainly somebody whose reputation we were all most aware of. Sure. Number two, Michael Schumacher. Yeah, again, new Michael, but uh, Michael, a bit more of a sense of humour, um, only from my uh, experience sure. of the two drivers. Very, very sure of himself, very confident. He nearly got me wiped out when he was telling me about uh, uh, him taking, uh, what was it, uh, was it Club, Club Corner? Flat. And I was in the Bennett and then getting in it, and I was trying to take it flat, and I couldn't get anywhere near it and then afterwards he said oh I take it flat and I thought right I can't have that so I got back in the car <laughs> came up to club absolutely flat out turned in and I jammed my foot on the accelerator so I didn't like one lift you know as soon as I turned in I realised it was a massive mistake the car's gone everywhere I I'll tell you what I, I did all the right things but I got blinking lucky I mean I was sideways everywhere I brought it back on the track brought it straight into the pits after that and um, I looked at Pat Simmons, the engineer, who'd come down. So I said, uh, Pat, can we check the tyre pressures? Because something's got to be wrong, you know? How can Michael take this flat and I can't, you know? And I, you know, before I was saying to myself, no, you, you've got to trust yourself, Perry. That's as fast as this is going to go. So I didn't understand. Mm -hmm. So he came back and then sat by the car and they'd been through the download. And he said, um, did we have a little moment out there? So I said, no. No, not at all. You know, braving it out. Didn't want them to know. He said, no, I think you did. So I said, why is that? He said, we've got you on full opposite lock at 180 miles an hour. So I said, well, Michael told me I could take that corner flat. He said, yes, you rock ape. He said, with no fuel in the cars and qualifying tyres, you're on used race tyres with either tank of fuel. And I went, oh, 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 oh. Yeah. <laughs> mission rules. So I think Michael thought that was quite amusing. Yeah. Okay, number three, Nigel Mansell. Again, don't know Nigel that well. Um, Nigel was a really exciting driver. Nigel was absolute spectator heaven um, because you knew the guy's a tiger, you know, or Il Leone, actually, mm -hmm. the lion, as named by Italian fans. Um, you knew he wouldn't give up. Um, and he was very brave, Nigel. So, you know, um, it's... did you know, Personality-wise, did you find Nigel, you know, would moan quite a bit, you know. Um, but... As a racing driver, no, I don't, you know, weren't too many flaws. He'd make some mistakes, but, you know, he was a fighter, absolute fighter. Yeah, okay. a great, to, to be admired, really. Now, this guy you do know, he's made my heart thump many occasions, Damon Hill. Never heard of him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm immensely fond of Damon. Um, but <clears throat> most of that, of course, is because, I'm, you know, my friendship with him and, and I kind of I actually know Damon quite well 
uh, we got on very well on quite a few different levels and he does make me laugh it does, you don't always see that when you see him interviewed or on television etc but J- Damon is very creative you know he's, he's got a great imagination he's an inquisitive guy as well he, he likes a lot of things that aren't Formula 1 you know he'll take an interest in this that la di da di da so he's you know he gives you the impression that he's somebody who's well read and quite considered um, the well read I couldn't guarantee but quite considered absolutely he does think things through as a racing driver Damon had a super ability to soak up pressure, in my opinion. I think they did a, a fantastic job doing that. And we'd already seen from Formula 3 and Formula 3000 that he could be very quick indeed. He really could. So Damon is one of us who just kept getting better. He really did. He applied himself and any natural talent that he did have grew. You know, he got better and better and better. And, of course, the crowning achievement, the World Championship, mm-hmm. you know, when I was in front of the TV watching that happen, you know, as Murray said, yeah, That's I've got a lump in my throat. Yeah, yeah well, you know, Murray wasn't the only one. You know, I certainly did. Yeah, Just thinking, too. well done, Damon. But as I say, as, you know, Damon is, certainly at that pack, Damon is a, a, a close friend. And I like him immensely. You know, we were at lunch just a few days ago, you know, and with our rat pack. Thing, okay. yeah, um, and we had, as always, a good laugh. Okay, how did the Rat Pack get its name? That was a journalist called David Tremaine. Mm-hmm. David's a very well-known Formula One journalist, but uh, he was covering us back in Formula Ford and Formula Three. And you know, by the time we'd come through Formula Ford together, there'd been big friendships developed between me, Damon, Johnny Herbert, Mark Blundell, Julian Bailey, and Martin Donnelly. And that was kind of standing out because you know we'd see each other. in between races and the families were getting to know each other all pardon me when we did have families the kids were all kind of born at the same time like and then we all moved together into formula 3000 then we moved there and then we all managed to get into f1 so we knew each other terribly well and we'd been this little band and it was dave tremaine that used to call us the rat pack and it's something that i think that we're all quite proud of because it is exceptionally unusual for somebody entering formula ford that they will indeed make it all the way through to Formula One. Well, our entire pack did that. So people still talk about those years in Formula Three, that maybe they, you know, maybe they were the most special Formula Three years ever. Because it wasn't just us, there were a couple other drivers who also made it through to F1. So there were like, in our Formula Three year, maybe nine or ten of us that got through to F1. Wow, can you remember them? Yeah, I can. There was us six, which is me, Damon, Johnny, Martin Donnelly, Mark Blundell, Julian Bailey. Then there was Bertrand Gasho, David Brabham. Oh, sorry, Gary Brabham. Um, where are we up to? Eight. Okay, I'm struggling on the other two. Okay, I'll forgive yeah, you. I'll forgive thanks. you those yeah. two. So Formula One today, it's, it's really quite different to five ten years ago for instance yeah so bernie eccleston has gone mm. we've got liberty media taken over where is it going what do you think about all of this aerodynamics and not being able to overtake we've had the arrows on for a real long time and we've had aero problems at the front end for a real long time so just very briefly if you're going down a motorway and if you're following a truck that truck is taking the air away. So you might notice you get what we call a slipstream. So that's fantastic. Great. 
So we get slipstreams in motor racing. So if I'm following you very high speed, thank you ever so much, you're taking the air away in front of me and I've got a slipstream. The only problem is if I'm still fairly close to you and haven't overtaken, by the time we enter the next corner, you've taken all the air away. And you might think, well, that's yeah, great, I'll close on him. But it's not. Because the front wing, rear wing, and floor configuration of aerodynamics is using the airflow over the car, around the car, under the car, through the car, of course, is for, for curling. But all the other flows are used to create what we call downforce. So high pressure, low pressure under the wings, high pressure on top, pushes the car down, you've got grip. Now that's wonderful, and the front wings and the aeros on these cars are absolutely unbelievably sophisticated to give you this level of grip. But I'm still following you going through the corner, you've taken the air away. So suddenly I've got limited, or more limited, pardon me, front grip. So now I'm having to back off because I haven't got the grip. I, in certain corners, that's going to affect me even if you're several cars ahead of me. So it is unbelievably frustrating for the race drivers. Certain circuits, clearly they can work better and they can follow cars better than other cars can. Mercedes aren't particularly great at following other cars in this year's car. The Ferrari certainly worked better in the wake of another car. So there's all these things, but it's really dull. And I kind of really get so frustrated about this. For goodness sake, just take the front wings off and dump them. Put them all in the bin. Um, because the front wings aren't just about creating downforce. They're about deflecting the air around and over the front tires, which is a massive thing to be able to do. You would not believe the kind of the benefits that that front wing, especially the in-plate configuration, is doing on how many areas and ways it is putting air over and around the car. It's too much. So throw them off. Let's all race with no front wings. It can be done. You might turn in a little bit slower, but you might be able to follow stuff a bit better in the future. And the other thing that completely winds me up is too much information. You know, it's almost like prescriptive driving. The engineers are consistently telling the drivers, this is the sweet spot for the tires, and you've got to do this, and you've got to do that. And well, screw all that. Just get in the car. Let's see the drivers drive, you know? We're talking about an engineering sport, of course. So there is this constant push-pull about who's got the upper hand. The people with the technology-led, the designers, then the engineers. But, okay, go design the car, make it mega, but we need to get some of the magic back. Put it back in the hands of the drivers. I'm well, but, but maybe the genie's out the bottle. You know, in fact, I think the genie is out the bottle. I can't see technically we're going to reverse on this too, too much. But it does upset me, thinking... You know, we've got times... I, I spoke to a young F1 driver recently, and I'm not going to name names. And he said they're not even scared of going off. Really. Yeah. Because the runoff areas are so big, the barrier technology is pretty good, and the cars are like, almost invincible. Now, okay, you know, this is going to be sounding like the older I get, the faster I was. One of those kind of conversations. Mm-hmm. I mean, when we were younger, we used to look at some of the older drivers who used to tell stories and think, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, maybe younger drivers might be hearing me and go, oh, God. You know, this halo technology that they're coming in is cockpit protection against anything. Get on with it, will you? If you don't want to do this game, don't do it. You know, we're making these, what are supposed to be the world's most beautiful cars, now look like some secondhand piece of junk from a secondhand TV show. You know, let the drums get on with it. You and unfortunately, we don't, we don't want to lose people, but 
there has to be a little bit of danger in this. Otherwise, you know, you're thinking the bloke down the fish and chip shop could end up doing it. That's not quite right, but you know what I mean. Yeah, most people think they can, though, can't they? Yeah, well, they're very, very wrong on that, because I'll guarantee you, if I got back into a Formula One car now, yeah, I don't think I'd be squeezing the fear level down too far, because <laughs> <laughs> these things are like rocket ships. And mentally, I'm just no way fast enough to be able to do justice to a, a good Formula One car now. Okay, talking about Formula One now, Lewis Hamilton. Yeah, he's a genius. And there's so few of us. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, we had a good year um, because now, um, between me and Lewis, we've currently won four world championships. <laughs> I'm rather hoping, if he, if he can keep this form, I'm rather hoping we're going five for five world championships next year. Yeah, Collectively, nice. obviously. Okay, Sebastian Vettel. Great driver. I like Seb as well. He's got a great, good sense of humor. I met him a few times. He's all right. Like interesting one for you, Fernando Alonso. Yeah, my wife's favorite, Fernando. GP2 engine. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. Yeah, I mean, like, Fernando is a, a super racing driver and he, he doesn't quit. I find it quite bizarre the accolades he receives for being a driver who never quits because I think, well, you know, are oh, there loads of drivers out there that do them? Um, because if there are, they should be fired because the racing drivers job in my mm -hmm. opinion is the you're on it uh, every tenth of a second for every lap of every race mm -hmm. um, but Fernando very talented very fast very knowledgeable yeah and as I say definitely the wife's favorite okay my cousin's favorite actually Jill Benton and you're going to like this driver I know I'm sure Kimi Raikkonen yeah, I like Kimmy because nothing faces Kimmy, you know, you can this is Kimmy speaking, it's nothing faces Kimmy. And it's what makes me laugh is that he gets bored with his own sentences. <laughs> it just trails off at the end. <laughs> okay. So I've been trying to do Nikki's accent recently actually, you know? When you hear Nikki Louder interviewed, I I I've got to work on this a bit more, but well Lewis did a great job. He finished first, it's all we want. It's beginning to sound like Indian accent, actually. But, uh, but that's, that's Nicky. He's very chopped, yeah. very close. Yeah. Doesn't say more than he really has to. It's that pop position, the fastest lap, he wins the race. That's all there is to it. But that's for second. <laughs> As I say, work in progress, guys. <laughs> okay. I want to go back to your book now. In the early stages, you talk about your father and the difficult situations you had with him regarding his opposing views on you being a racing driver. That must have been difficult times. Well, that's the end of part three, but it's not the end of this interview with Perry McCarthy, the original stick from BBC's Top Gear. Coming up in part four, Perry talks about his life after the stick, his relationship with his father as an up-and-coming racing driver and he answers some vital questions on what it takes to succeed in life. Perry gives wonderful insights into ambition, determination, working in a competitive environment, and he gives us some meaningful advice on how to be prepared for the future. If you're enjoying the show, please hit follow. Make sure you don't miss a single episode and share. 
It really does make a huge difference because without your help, we can't succeed. So please go ahead and click those buttons. I'm always looking for great success stories. So if you'd like to be a guest on the show or you'd like to nominate a guest, please contact me at jeff-smith.com. I'd really love to hear from you. Well, that's all from me. Thank you very much for listening. I look forward to meeting you again on part four with the stick. Thank you for listening. Have a great day.